Welcome to the New Life Podcast. Here we want you to experience the grace of God. So through this sermon, we hope to come alongside you as you grow in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about New Life, please visit our website at newlifeonline.org. Here's today's message. We're continuing on our series called Supporting Cast. And many times it's the uh, second tier of actors that can make the most difference in the plot of a movie. Um, And sometimes as we look at the Bible, there's many, many people who are the supporting cast, often overlooked people in the Bible, kind of secondary persons. Last week, Brian talked about Barnabas. Remember, it was Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. And suddenly, if you read the Bible through, it's Paul and Barnabas, as Barnabas plays second fiddle to Paul. But sometimes those second fiddle people really make a difference. Um, Few people know the names, oftentimes, of people behind the big names. We often talk about Moses or Abraham or King David and things like that, but we want to focus during this series on some of the lesser known uh, people in the Bible because success in the kingdom of God really depends upon faithful people who often we are unaware of. You know, we've, this morning we had a chance to meet at 8.30 with the group of people who volunteer with the children. Okay, there's a group of people that are kind of unsung heroes. Behind the scenes, people don't know a whole lot. Maybe you don't even know who they are, but they're serving faithfully back there, volunteering with our children. Today, we are going to focus on a particular character in the New Testament. His name is Joseph, also known as Joseph of Arimathea. Now, the history where this comes out is I was teaching a class uh, in the adult ed time. Right before Easter, we are talking about what was... What events took place in the final week of Jesus' life here on earth? And we started, of course, with Palm Sunday. We finished with the uh, crucifixion. We covered the trial before Pilate and things like that. And we got to the burial of Jesus. And it's very interesting because I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon or a lesson to talk about the burial of Jesus. We just kind of gloss over it. It's in the Apostles' Creed where he says he was died and buried. But it came out that as we studied that burial narrative that Joseph of Arimathea was mentioned. And I was fascinated as I looked at Joseph of Arimathea, the role that he played and what lessons we can learn about God and about uh, ourselves and about Joseph as we studied the life of Joseph of Arimathea. He was a man of courage, and he also was a man of great hope. So we want to talk about, he's mentioned in all four of the Gospels, so we're going to touch on each of those text, but first of all, we're going to turn to the primary text in Mark chapter 15. We're going to have it on the screen here. Mark 15, this is where, uh, to kind of set the stage for this, Jesus, this is the last week in Jesus' life here on earth. He comes in to, to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Thursday, there's a trial before the Jews, then the Romans, then back to the Jews, and back to the Romans, and then he's sentenced and condemned to death. And So he's crucified, we know that story, he's crucified, and normally they would leave the bodies of a crucified prisoner or a person on the cross for days uh, as an example to everybody else. But this particular time, we know they had to take that body down because it was the Passover or the day of preparation. So they needed the bodies of Jesus and the other two fellows off the cross. So here it is, we pick it up here in Mark chapter 15. It says this, So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who is himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. 
Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So here we have the the burial narrative, often overlooked, but we see for the only time the prominent member, Joseph of Arimathea. So what do we know about this guy, Joseph of Arimathea? What do we know about his background? Some interesting facts. First, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of the day of Jewish people. They were the Jewish ruling body in Jerusalem, a 71-member body, and they were in charge of not only religious things, Jewish things, but they were in charge of the civil law, and they were in charge of the criminal law. But we also know that because of Roman occupation, the Romans really covered everything, and the Jewish Sanhedrin served subservient to the Roman rule. We know that Joseph is referred to as a prominent member of the council. So he's just not a rank-and-file member, a lower echelon. He's a prominent member of the council. He's a big shot. And he was a man of influence. Now we also know about Joseph that earlier we find out in the Gospel of Luke that he was opposed to having Jesus crucified. So we read this in Luke chapter 23. This is the Luke narrative. It says this. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council. That's the Sanhedrin. A good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. That was their decision to try Jesus and put him to death. He came from a Jewish Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. So he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. So we see that he's a prominent member of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, but he's also a man of influence. People listened to Joseph. He was an important guy. Um, among the Jews and the Romans because it says he was able to approach Pilate and ask for the body. I would guess not many people could just walk up to Pilate back in the day and ask a favor, but he was such a man of influence that he had authority and the wherewithal to walk up to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. So much so that Pilate then summoned a centurion. You know, nobody summons a centurion. Pilate did But this is at the bequest of Joseph. So he was a man of influence. But we also know he was a man of great wealth. You know, back in that day, grave plots were very, very expensive. Only the rich or extremely rich could afford such a tomb like he had. Most people were just buried in common graves. But Joseph was a rich man. So what do we know about his character? He pled for and got the body of Jesus to bury in his tomb. Why would he do that? Other than out of honor and respect for Jesus. Jesus had been his mentor and his teacher. And even though Jesus was dead and all hope seemed to be lost, he wanted to show respect to the body of Jesus. For we see he was already a believer. Remember it said he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Not sure what that would mean in the day. Was he waiting for deliverance from the Roman authorities? Was he waiting for uh, the Messiah? Did, did he understand Jesus to be the Messiah? 
It's not very clear, but it says he was waiting for the kingdom of God. In the Matthew's version, <clears throat> he's referred to as a disciple. Now, that's very important. So here's Matthew's version of the burial. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. So we see in this passage that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus. Now we know the 12 disciples, but also from reading the Gospels, there are, there are, beyond the 12, there were many other followers or disciples of Jesus that went with him everywhere he went, followed him, listened to his teachings, saw his miracles. So we can surmise from this that Joseph of Arimathea had been a follower, albeit a secret follower, of Jesus for a substantial period of time. He had no doubt been there when Jesus calmed the storm, perhaps, healed a blind person. Maybe he was there when Jesus spoke on the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe he was there when Jesus talked about the day that he would rise again in three days. We don't know exactly, but it, when he was a disciple, that means he was a follower of Jesus. And surely, like the other disciples, he thought Jesus was the deliverer, the Messiah that was going to deliver them, perhaps from the Romans, ushering the kingdom of God, and all of his hope and trust had been placed in Jesus. But now he's faced, after the death and burial of Jesus, that his own colleagues from the Sanhedrin had killed the man he thought to be the Messiah. And his hope for deliverance was shattered as the man that he had put his trust in, that he had put his hope for deliverance in, was now a lifeless corpse. So Joseph was a man of courage. Interesting, he publicly, when he asked for the body of Jesus, he publicly identifies with Jesus. That is huge. It has been a secret so far. He had been a secret follower of Jesus. But now... He was known to all the enemies, the people who had killed Jesus. He became known as a follower of Jesus. Interesting, at this time, almost everyone had abandoned Jesus. You know, he was arrested in the garden. It says the disciples fled. We know that John perhaps stayed close by. But we know Peter, the great Peter, denied Jesus three times and was watching from a distance, very cowardly. We know that those two guys on the road to Emmaus, we had a sermon about that some time ago, the two guys on the road to Emmaus were walking away from Jerusalem. They were, it says they were downcast because their hopes in Jesus had been dashed. Their Savior had been killed. So what is it about Joseph of Arimathea that rather than leave and bail like everybody else, why did he not only just stay, he went forward and publicly identified when he had everything to lose and nothing to gain. And the risk to him at this time, not only his political future with the Sanhedrin, he just identified as a follower of Jesus when they wanted to kill Jesus. We know that Paul, in the book of Acts, was on a mission to kill early followers of Jesus. So this was great risk 
that Joseph of Arimathea publicly identified with Jesus. His livelihood, his political future, maybe his own life was in jeopardy. So we see what he did. He offered his expensive tomb, a lavish uh, gift to a dead person. Um, We also know he was used by God to fulfill prophecy. In, In Isaiah 53 it says this, talking about the Messiah, which we know to be Jesus. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. So it was a biblical prophecy that the Messiah would be killed and that he would be buried with the rich. And how significant is that, that Joseph steps up and offers his tomb so Jesus could be buried in a rich man's tomb? It's very, very odd because the, the custom of the day was that when someone was crucified on a cross, they would leave their body up there for days so that animals would get at it and people could go by and heckle. But also there's a warning to everybody else that if you defy the laws of Rome, this is what's going to happen to you. So the bodies were left up for days sometimes. And then when they were taken down, since they were criminals, usually thieves and things like that, they were thrown into a mass grave outside the city gates. And in the Jesus case, that would have happened had not Joseph gone forward and asked for the body. Therefore, we have a tomb. We have a tomb that is empty, an identifiable tomb that is empty because no one can deny the fact that the tomb was empty and Jesus has risen from the dead. We know what that means to our faith. It's the cornerstone of our faith. Joseph of Arimathea played a role in that empty tomb. Now, we also know that Joseph was joined by Nicodemus. I like Nicodemus. He was a lawyer. So, you know, you can pick on lawyers all you want, but Nicodemus was a lawyer. He kind of a timid follower of Jesus, and I kind of can identify with that a little bit myself at times. Uh, But Nicodemus, now he was another member of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And we know in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He's a member of the ruling council, the Jewish people, and he comes to Jesus at night because he's, he's timid, he's fearful. He comes under cover of darkness. He also is a secret follower of Jesus. So we got Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two secret followers of Jesus. So listen to John's version because John includes Nicodemus. It says this, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So why would Joseph and Nicodemus, why would they publicly identify with Jesus at this particular point in time. 
the risk to them, like I said, their livelihood, their political future, maybe their lives itself would have been jeopardized by them publicly identified with Jesus. And Jesus is dead at this time. Now, it, it's, it's a little counterintuitive to publicly identify with Jesus at this time. It would have made more sense to stay secret, stay silent, and then if Jesus did rise from the dead, then come out and get on the bandwagon. But they did it when everybody else fled. They did it when it appears to be all hope is lost. Why would they do that? What's in it for them? So what can we learn about Joseph of Arimathea? What can we learn, first of all, about God from this narrative? We see that God's promises come true. Maybe not when we want them or how we want them, but his promises come true. The prophecy about the burial of Jesus in a rich man's tomb comes true because of Joseph. His resurrection and the empty tomb comes true because we know there was a specific place where that body was put and that there was a place they could go on Easter Sunday morning and that tomb was empty. So God <clears throat> has people and followers like us that he will use to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. God uses ordinary people. An ordinary person like you and I with an extraordinary God can do great things. You know, as we finished a series not too long ago where we looked at the whole Bible from beginning to end and got the themes of the Bible, there are periods of time throughout the Bible history, throughout the whole story of the Bible, that are dark times. You know, like when Joseph was in prison. Things were pretty bleak. Or when God's people were carried off into exile. Here's supposed to be the, the, the promised people, the chosen people, and suddenly they're carried off into exile and things don't look too bright. A dark period. <clears throat> or when a flood covered the earth. Or when they were slaves in Egypt. People would say, people probably could have said, well, it's so much for being the chosen people, now we're just slaves. But we need to remind that in each one of these things, God delivered people. God, God is a God of deliverance. When dark times come, God is faithful to his promises. Maybe not on our timetable, but on his timetable. We see that throughout the history of the Bible. <clears throat> How about lessons from Joseph for our own lives? You know, Joseph was a man of courage. He publicly identified with Jesus Christ at great personal risk and cost. How about us? How hard is it to publicly identify with Jesus? We don't have the cost, perhaps, that Joseph Arimathea did, where his political future and his, perhaps his life is on stake. He wasn't like Peter, who denied Jesus, or the two guys on the road to Emmaus. He publicly came out and identified with Jesus. Courage. He was a man of courage to face incredible costs and stand up for what he thought was right. You know, we, we watch movies with about supporting cast about movies. We see, we, we all like those movies where there's a man of courage or a woman of courage that stands against the tide of public opinion. And of course, in the Christian realm, and getting back to my Lutheran roots, is Martin Luther, who was called upon to recant his Christian faith. And he said, I cannot do that. Here I stand. I can't do anything else. I can do no other. And we, we, we're inspired by those stories of the hero who stands firm for what he believes despite the cost. 
Joseph here had nothing to gain by identifying with Jesus. Matter of fact, he had everything to lose. Jesus was dead. All of his hopes in terms of the deliverance of Israel were dashed. And yet, at that particular time, he stood firm and was one of the few who identified as a follower of Jesus. So courage, courage in the face of seemingly hopeless circumstances. Let me, let me go through three takeaways from their story of Joseph throughout these four Gospels. First of all is this. God uses ordinary people like you and me and all followers to accomplish his purposes. God could do things on, on just by saying the word, but he chooses to use people. So are you willing to offer yourself to submit to God and be used by him, even if it's in an obscure role? Ordinary people in a, and an extraordinary God are a powerful combination. You know, when I'm going through this, I'm reminded of a story that I love, <clears throat> and it's this. <clears throat> Speaking of people that are ordinary it was the year 1858 in the city of Boston. Edward Kimball was a young Sunday school teacher who made it a habit to personally give each student in his class an opportunity to accept Christ as their Savior. He was concerned about one of his students who worked in a shoe store. One day, Kimball visited the young man at the store where he found him in the back stocking shelves, and he led him to Christ. That student was Dwight L. Moody, who eventually left the shoe business to become one of the greatest evangelists of all time. See, everybody knows Dwight Moody, but not everybody knows Edward Kimball. But Edward Kimball is a hero, an unsung hero of the Bible. So God uses ordinary people, people like us, people like Edward Kimball, to accomplish his purposes. Never underestimate your ability. When I, we see people back there working with the children during kids' life, who knows whether that's the next Dwight Moody? Who knows that that person, that young boy or young girl, will be a great, great person for God? Second thing is this. We need the courage to publicly identify with Jesus Christ. That's what Joseph did. Publicly identified with Jesus. So let Joseph inspire you. Do you identify openly as a follower, as a disciple of Jesus, as a Christian? Do your neighbors know it? Do your co-workers know it? Do your family and friends know it? Or are you a secret disciple like Joseph was, like Nicodemus was, until the end? See, it's easy to identify as a Christian when we're with fellow believers that we kind of hang around with and stuff. And, but, but what about when we're at risk of being ridiculed, perhaps ignored or ostracized in some way, when it's not a popular thing to identify with Jesus? Do we then identify with Jesus like Joseph would have done? So how do you get courage to do that? Practically speaking, how do you get courage to publicly stand as a follower of Jesus despite the cost? A couple things. First of all, practice courage. How do you get courage? Practice courage in little things. Practice courage like when you walk across the street to introduce yourself to a neighbor, and during that conversation, identify mildly perhaps as a Christian, or as a churchgoer, or when you're having a conversation with somebody at the office, you bring up 
the topic of Christianity. Just not enough, not offensively, not over the top, but you make small incremental steps using your courage to publicly identify with Jesus, and it gets more and more and more. Courage is like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it will get. Also, ask God for courage. God, just pray, God, would you give me and help me to be courageous? 1 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And then also, keep company with courageous people. Avoid timid people. Hang around people who are bold about their faith. Hang around people who clearly identify with Jesus. Surround yourself with courageous people. You'll get courage. It'll rub off on you. <clears throat> you know, here we have Joseph. We picked up Nicodemus. It can't be overemphasized that two people can stand stronger than one. Would Joseph have done what he did if Nicodemus wasn't there to encourage him? Or would Nicodemus have stood strong if Joseph wasn't there? In my mind, I see the two of them working on each other. You can do this. Yes, you can. Come on, let's go. We can do this. They're encouraging each other to stand strong for God. Is it any secret that throughout the Bible, uh, this is a way that God uses and advances kingdom by pairs, by community? There's power in community. Like the three men in the fiery furnace or the three men that were supposed to bow down. Or what about Jesus? When he sent the disciples out, he didn't send them out as singles, but he sent them out in pairs because two people can stand stronger than one. So the, the, one of the takeaways is Joseph and Nicodemus. We need to press into community. Good Christian friends are worth a ton. The third thing is we need courage in face of hopelessness. Courage in the face of hopelessness. When God appears to be absent there are times throughout history, the Bible history, when they said, where's God? How come he's not here? We're, we're in dire circumstances here, the dark night of the soul, so to speak, and God's AWOL. You know, in our world today, you can make a pretty good case, if you wanted to, that God is absent. The world seems to be spinning out of control. Our culture is spinning out of control. What is wrong is made to look right. And what is right is ridiculed and made to look wrong. There are no consequences in today's world for doing the wrong things, for violating God's principles. Evil seems to be triumphing. And we ask sometimes, where are you, God? Where, where have you left the building? Abortion is on demand? Where's God? How can God sit back and allow this to happen, God? You know, there's a billboard. I drove back from St. Louis this week. There's a billboard as you drive out of St. Louis. It says, Welcome to Illinois, where abortion is safe and legal. That's what Illinois is being known for. It's a haven where babies can be killed with no reason. This week, the governor signed into law overturning the parental notification law for abortion. Previously, the law said that children, young girls, could not get an abortion without notifying their parents, except in extreme circumstances, and you had to get a judge to overrule that. Now, with the new law, children can get 
an abortion without any notice to their parents. Your daughter could, be, could get an abortion. She could leave, come back. You may never know she had an abortion. What does that say about babies? What does that say about young girls? What does that say about parents and the role of parents in raising children today? And you think, well, God, why don't you do something about this? How about when, how about when the gunman enters that school in Texas and shoots and kills all those children? Where's God? You can see where people are going to say, God must not be care. Where is he? Things seem to be hopeless and out of control. So what would Joseph of Arimathea say? Because at his time, things seemed out of control. Things seemed hopeless. The Savior, who he had put all of his hope in, was dead. He's looking at the corpse right then and there. Things seemed hopeless. The end of the rope. What would he say? He'd say, honor Jesus. Do the right thing. Hope in the ultimate time when all things will be made right. We don't know when or how, but we need to trust God. Joseph somehow was able to conjure up hope and trust that he's not sure how or when or what the mechanics were, but he's going to cast his faith and his vote with Jesus and God will do something here. I'm not sure what. Things appear pretty doggone dark right now, but I'm going to honor Jesus above all things. Or maybe personally, separate from culture, maybe personally in your own life. Maybe you are experiencing or maybe you have experienced a time where God seems far away. And you may rightfully say, where are you, God? What, what in the world is going on? A loved one dies. Or you get a bad diagnosis from the doctor. Or a relationship falls apart. A financial setback. Or maybe... Something in your life right now that just stinks. And you say, God, where are you? I don't get it. I don't understand. I put my trust in you. What has happened here? How could you let this happen? Things seem hopeless. There might be a time right now. Things seem hopeless for you. What do we need to do? What does Joseph say? Hang on. Hang on. You're not sure how, but deliverance will come. Let the courage of Joseph of Arimathea and his faith and his hope in the ultimate redemption by God help you to stand firm. You know, we're going to sing a song here at the end. It's the Waymaker song. We know the words. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, light in the darkness, that Jesus is the waymaker. He will make a way. We're not sure when or how. He will make that way. He's the miracle worker. He promises, he keeps his promise. He's that light in the darkness. When things seem dark, Jesus is that light. Let me close with a quote from Apostle Paul to encourage you, to encourage all of us when we face difficult times and hopeless situations. This is in 1 Corinthians 15, 15 verse 58. We don't have it on the screen, but here it is. I, this verse means a lot to me. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's, a, that's what Joseph of Arimathea would say. That's what Paul says. And we need to hang on to that. Our hope and our trust is in God, even in very dark times. 
So let the courage and the example and the hope that Joseph has inspire us to be like him.